Good afternoon, this is Gary Kavner here on TRSI. I'm here today with my friend and colleague Michael Dwyer. Today is Wednesday the 10th of March. Michael, how have you been since we last spoke? Fantastic. That was an incredibly odd way of saying that word. We live in odd times and I'm an odd man. No one could doubt it. Anyway, I hope the listener has also been as fantastic as Michael has apparently been, but without the weird, threatening accent. There's no threat. So, Michael, I just wanted to, to open by uh, noting something about the, the ISAG story we've been talking about, the, the zero leak story. That was brought up by Ronan Mullen, uh, Senator Ronan Mullen, in the Shannid uh, Monday. And um, he didn't mention Grip by name, but he, he did mention what we had reported, and he made the very fair observation that, um, you know, should we really be quoting these people and bringing these people in, or should media be quoting them and bring them in, without at least them being questioned on what is happening? Now, there has been no response to that from ISAG. I would imagine they will attempt to continue not responding to anything to do with this issue, but that's slightly more difficult now because uh, it's on the Shannon record, and that for people of a very respectable, you know, a very respectable level of society would be considered a big thing. Yeah, I noticed. What was it? Eleven hours after the video went out of him speaking. There had been 30,000 views. I don't know what it's the views are at now. And yet, I haven't seen a massive amount of reporting about it in the national newspapers or on our national broadcaster, Gary. No, no. I mean, there were, there were a couple of people involved with ISAG on the media today. I know uh, Dr. Sam McConkie was on the radio uh, Gabriel Scally, who is an advisor to ISAG and was the person who sent rules for radicals over to them, was on the radio. I think in both cases, uh, neither of them were identified as being linked to ISAG, so that seems to be the predominant change now. Their members are still appearing, but they're not identifying themselves as being associated with ISAG, mm-hmm. while uh, they very clearly still are associated with it. And I suppose then you can go, well, look... I wasn't named in that report. I'm not involved. I can only comment about myself, and I just want to go on as a you know as a person. Maybe their identity is fluid. Sometimes they they identify as Isaac. Sometimes they don't. But I think we will by the time this podcast goes live. I think I will put out have put out another one of those stories, and um, we will see what the movement is like on that because now. There would have been, there were reporters in various newspapers and media outlets that were looking into it, and none of them could get by it by editorial. But now that a sitting senator has put it on the Shannon record, that might become a little bit easier to do, or there might be a little bit more incentive if you didn't cover it the when it originally broke, to maybe give it a um, give it a shout now. Maybe, maybe, but then use the word incentive. Incentive is based on the notion very often of competition or getting there first or at least getting there before others. If you think nobody else is going to cover it or we don't want to cover it and nobody else wants to cover it for whatever reasons. I thought it was interesting on social media to see more than one person commenting in a manner that it made very clear that they weren't the kinds of people who would normally listen to anything that Ronan Mullen said or agree with a single opinion out of his mouth. But on this, they would say, well, we have to say he has said it. It is true. We agree wholeheartedly. And it's ridiculous that it's taken this long for somebody in the Oireachtas or somebody in the public eye to actually come out and say these things. So the people who are supporting him and the people who are saying, Sort of agreeing with it. It's certainly not, shall we say, the usual suspects regarding Ronan's base. There are people from. There is obviously uh, an appetite for this kind of analysis, this kind of criticism of these people and their role in advising the government and the direction the government is taking. And yes, we're stuck yet again, Gary, with essentially not a story which is becoming not about the story but the meta story. Why the story isn't a story? Why it isn't being reported? Well, I was told by a couple of people involved in radio that it wasn't going to be reported because it was thought there would be too much blowback 
from reporting the story, both in relation to the zero COVID people or more not ISAG themselves, but the the left-wing groups that have gotten involved in that, reaching out to sponsors and advertisers trying to make it into a problem. And there was also a general feeling that um, most of the country's radio stations are currently propped up by the the HSE taking out ads. And if anything were to happen to that, it would be disastrous for the stations themselves. And I would suspect the um, papers are in the same place. Now, I'm not sure why ISAG would feed directly into that, but they seemed of the opinion that it was a concern. So I would suspect we won't be seeing a lot of coverage from that. There's a whole lot of stuff about that that seems to me problematic. Well, I think it's a wonderful uh, wonderful demonstration of some of the issues with state funding. Yeah, I mean, let's say, I mean, if, if, if this is the level of supineness they're facing from being critical of a group which isn't even a part of the state's apparatus, but contains within it people who are connected with people in the state apparatus or work within it. And that apparatus is then controlled by the government. And that, as I said, produces this level of supine response. Imagine if the state was actually directly subventing the, the newspapers as the proposal is that they should do. What does this say about the relationship between ISAIC and the HSE if there's a perception that being critical of ISAIC in this manner would be the same as essentially, I don't know, be critical of the HSE or would in turn piss off the HSE and that they potentially wouldn't put advertising the way of a radio station, which would seem to me to be odd. And probably illegal. Well, I suppose it, it, it highlights one of the, the actual real problems with state subvention of media. It's that it could be that these people are right. That, you know, where they to report on this, the ISAC guys, because so many are senior doctors, have links to the HSE. And without anything really being said, problems will be created. But it's also possible that they're entirely wrong. Yeah. That there would be no reaction from the HSE at all, because... Why would they care? The problem there is that we've effectively created a situation in which the state is uh, is supporting these industries. And now these industries have to kind of, you know, they need to read the bones and kind of say, well, what way is the wind going internally in these, you know, in the government, in the departments that are taking out these ads? Because we can't afford to annoy them. I don't know. I obviously, how could I? I suspect that if it came to that, the HSE's purchasing of advertising time for the sake of whether it's public information stuff or it's our hiring people or advertising services would have to go out to the usual subjects and to the to the usual sources and there aren't that many in Ireland and I'd be I just think it would be it strikes me as unlikely not impossible but unlikely that there would be a hit but that the the degree to which they are dependent on this advertising has obviously made these people very sensitive and slightly paranoid and is affecting the way they behave which is not good and slightly worrisome i mean the fact that as you say a member of the a member of the iraq just a, 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 a member in the stood up in the channel and said this and it's not even that it's being disputed carrie it's not even being disputed there, nobody's coming out and saying that this is misquoted this is mischaracterized this is lied no it's just being it's being ignored to death, silently allowed to pass by. Yeah, I mean, a couple of the, the reporters I know who looked into this, and some of them wrote stuff up and passed up to editorial where it uh, vanished and some didn't. But everyone agreed it was a story. But what I heard from a couple of them was that ISAG, once they know you're asking about this, they just stop taking your calls. They just go tightly silent. They don't respond to anything. And there was a feeling that because of the seriousness of what was being put forward, these people had to be given a chance to respond. To which I think... No. My my, my point would be, you know, of course you offer them a chance to respond. But I had passed on some of these people the raw documents, or at least a selection of them. They could see enough to verify what was being said. They'd made every attempt to allow these people to comment. And these people weren't doing so. At some point, you have to just pull the trigger. And I would suspect if, if we were in a different situation, they would pull the trigger. You give them the opportunity to comment. 
you give them a, a, a reasonable and fair opportunity and time to comment or to respond. And if they don't, well, then you, you go forward with the story insofar as you can substantiate it. Also, I mean, these people may need comment from Isaac, but Isaac surely needs the press as much as the press needs Isaac. I mean, for them to get their message out there, they have to have access to the media. I mean, if the media says to decide to take the position, right, lads, until you're willing to address this, until you're willing to respond to it, we can't really, in good faith, put you on to talk about uh, your position or to let you advocate for what you want. If you're not willing to make, if you're not willing to talk about this and respond to this, and just shut them down. And if that was the case, well, then they would have to, they would have to respond. But it seems to be they're being given an an incredible amount of leeway that they're being allowed to continue to advocate within the media, but not being expected to reciprocate by responding to when responding to the perfectly reasonable questions the media has for them. Certain organisations know that these people are avoiding other members of their organisation, but are then allowing them to appear on you know, in other things, to appear in other stories, to go on to other shows. But you're you're right. If there was just an editorial stance of listen, lads, just answer the fucking question. Mm-hmm. Like we're not saying that crypt is right, but just tell us what's happening here. And if it's a good answer, fine. But they're not doing that, and I suspect that's because we are in a very unusual situation for a lot of these organisations. And as I said, some of the radio people were pretty explicit that this is just what's happening. So very apologetic, but just it's not going anywhere. That's where we are at the moment anyway. So yeah. I mean, this is one of the advantages that Grift has in that it doesn't have any friends in government. <laughs> and it, doesn't have any, uh, yes. it doesn't have any sponsors you can go to and try and get them to pull their support. It's entirely donor-funded. And if you listen to this show and you like what we're doing, please do consider donating to Grift to allow us to do more of it. I'm getting better at putting those plugs in there, Michael. You know, one in every 50 episodes, I remind people of donations. I'd never make it as like a you know, telephone salesman. But yeah, look, if the media was interested in this, they'd cover it. And actually, that was one of the points of Ronan Mullins. Um, I'll put a link to the to a, an article and a video that we, we put up on Gripped about it, because we just took it out of the, um, the Shannon TV. But that was his point, that look, mm-hmm. this has been said. No one has denied it. It's been weeks. And it hasn't been reported on RTE. It hasn't been reported on all of these things. And it should be. Even if there is an answer... Someone has to ask the question. You can't just raise the question and then assume everything is fine when the people just sort of start slowly slinking away and disappearing when it's brought up. Yep. So onto another strange little media story, Michael. We're talking about um, the journal the last time and how the journal's fact check wasn't actually a fact check and then how only 33% of their material actually met the criteria for being a fact check. Yep. And I was saying I'd reached out to Facebook to, you know, See what Facebook thought about this. And Michael, I feel that Facebook probably reached out to the uh, International Fact Checking Network because I received an email from the chief executive of the International um, Fact Checking Network today, or sorry, yesterday when this podcast goes up, mm-hmm. uh, saying that he, he found it, he thought it was disappointing and I had misrepresented his, um, his views in the first article and the journal can do whatever it wants. And whatever way they do it, it does not violate any of the codes. And regardless of what was about that fact check, it was a a fact check and it was in compliance with the codes of principles, regardless of what it did. So it's almost like you're suggesting that this group would take Facebook more seriously than it would you. Well, Michael, if I was a gambling man, I would say that what likely happened is a small publication reached out saying that one of their signatories likely had breached one of the articles and basically asking for comment. They, in an attempt to support one of their signatories, and they seem to quite like the journal, uh, basically said, well, you know, they tried to fob me off, but I wouldn't be fobbed off. And then they came up with a bullshit excuse that was on the face of it farcical. Just for clarity, you seem to be saying that what they were saying was the journal can do what the hell it likes. And that doesn't, but I imagine that's not quite what they're saying. Should we say, I, I think you could argue that is a um, potential reading of the text, Michael. But uh, I, I got back to them and I said, you know, I, obviously if I've misrepresented you, I'd hate to do that. And you know, if, if you want to clarify what you're saying, you know, I'll go back and I'll correct it. But I just, 
what you told me was, and I, I said the direct quote, and you, you said, if they've published content without a verdict, then that's a non-fact-checking content that they host at their website. And that due to that, you saw no problems with the article I brought up. You now seem to have entirely, um, entirely reversed that position. And I know I asked, could they clarify what the original response actually meant if I had misrepresented it by quoting it in full? And I don't, I don't see any way the journal's fact checks can be considered fact checks and also be in accordance with Article 4 of the IFCN's Code of Principles. And the important thing here is that because the IFCN regulates who becomes a fact checker for Facebook and is, you know, the gold standard there, if their principles are not actually binding on those who sign up to it, well, then there's nothing stopping them from publishing anything they want. And the IFCM will apparently just go, it's grand. Mm-hmm. So the, the thing, the reason the verdicts were important, and there's no requirement to use a verdict under the IFCN's Code of Principles. And I will link the, the two stories I wrote at the bottom here because it'll probably give more clarity than trying to explain what is quite a technical matter. Um, in audio. The IFCN code, Article 4 of it, says they have to be um, open and, and uh, transparent about your methodology. Yeah. I made the point that the journal says it would use verdicts in the methodology section they have on their website, where it explains how they do fact checks, and also in their application to the IFCN. And I said, well, look, they're not using fact checks on these things. That is not in line with their methodology. Therefore, I can't see how it's in accordance with Article 4 because you can't be transparent with your methodology if you don't actually apply your methodology. Which is why they had originally said to me, well, then they're not fact checks. Now they are fact checks, but not only are they fact checks, but they don't breach Article 4. I am waiting to hear back from the IFCN as to how this, how this, square, how this circle can be squared. And I do not have any great expectation of a response. I would suspect that Facebook reached out to them. They realised that... I did not do what they thought I would do, which was take the answer and you know, go away. And when Facebook reached out to them, they went, oh, this is actually a problem. Bollocks. Apparently indicating that our signatories were not actually covered by the code when fact-checking might be something that could cause us problems. Hmm. I would suspect that's what happened. I don't know that's what happened. It could have been absolutely nothing of the sort. But there's just a, a certain interesting timing to this. This has not really improved my uh, opinion of the IFCN. My opinion of them is that they have, um, that this is obviously, this entire thing is nonsense. That this is just them trying to avoid saying the journal breached something. It would appear to have clearly breached. And then, you know, as, as the old joke says, things got out of hand. From the very get-go, the whole notion of fact-checkers. I mean, it's a lovely idea. You get a lot of people together of high standards, well-informed, journalistic ethics up the Yazoo. You get people from the right and from the left and from the centre, and they all agree on a certain approach. And it's going to be lovely, and it's going to improve the quality of journalism across the world. That lasted around a wet weekend. Who's fact-checking the fact-checkers? And it's just snakes eating snakes at the end of the day. Because... <laughs> Anybody who's ever read two different two history books about the same event will be well aware of the ancient dictum of history that history is not just is not about the facts, but as much about the choosing which facts that you choose to decide to give importance to as it is about anything else. I, I well, I think we have you know this situation has finally given us an answer to the old quandary of who watches the watch. Yeah. And it turns out it was me. Yeah. Custodia Custodis. Which is actually the URL, Michael, of the second journal story I put up. <laughs> that was my favourite part of the story. I would have thought that the IFCN would have some sort of internal sense of pride or, you know, standards. And would just go, okay, look, it was a fair cop. Also just managing its brand. Well, that's the thing. And I think that may have been one of the things that if Facebook did reach out to them, they would have noticed pretty quickly. When when I took the definition they gave me and showed that using your own definition, you know, only a third of what you apparently thought one of your best members was producing is is actually a fact check to you, that seems deeply embarrassing, or it, it seems like it should be deeply embarrassing. Yeah, I, I I I will throw in here just this observation that 
what you're actually talking about here is not necessarily the content of any individual fact check, but rather the methodology that goes into something becoming recognized according to the criterion set down by the international organization as to what constitutes a fact check. Now, we might dispute certain fact checks. The fact, uh, the unfortunate thing about this is that I have read fact checks done in the journal, which I thought were actually excellent and really well done and well researched, very much to the point. So I, I wouldn't want to tar with the same brush necessarily every fact check attempt made by the journal, even though I am fundamentally suspicious of the idea of the fact check as some kind of panacea for the problem of fake news or whatever. Or indeed the idea that we have the fake news is this terrible new horrible thing which was invented by Trump. There have been fact checks that I've read on areas that I knew a little bit about and I thought that's really good, that's really well done. It's unfortunate for those people who are doing the job and doing it very well, they, if the show say again the brand should be damaged by other instances where they fail to meet their own standards or the standards set down by the international organization. I I I yes, I have also read actually journal fact checks that have been just excellently done and nuanced. They tend to be older fact checks. I have a feeling that their fact checking program was set up by someone mm-hmm. and he wrote most of the original ones and then left or was sacked or was gone now anyway. And then since then quality has been quite variable. Anyway, I wanted to put that down just as a, out of some sort of vague sense of fairness that uh, they have in the past been capable of some very good work. And it would be unfortunate that that wasn't recognised. Uh, the only thing there is that in the same way that the journal turns off comments on stories that it deems to be uh, politically beneficial to them, that there be no comments on, that kind of behaviour does not make me think any more likely that they would actually handle fact checks fairly. And I can still remember during the abortion referendum when uh, the pro-life side started using some of their fact checks to say that some of the claims of the pro-life side were true and the journal retroactively went back and amended the fact checks yes. and failed to note some of the changes they had made pretty much because they got pissed off at the pro-life side who were kind of poking fun at them but also because the pro-life side and the journal and would be would be very much on the repeal side of things because they didn't want it to be used like that. And that indicates to me that the journal is absolutely willing to use fact-checks politically. And at that point, like fact-checking, I think, is always is a fraught enterprise because it, it's, it's largely just, you know, picking a victor. And then this is the way we're going to look at it. But when you start doing things like that, it's actively becoming a weapon. But anyway, I mean, you know, Michael, this does give me a chance to produce a, a third story which I think I'm going to headline in final humiliating reversal, journal now fact-checking again. Well, as long as you're having fun, Gary, that's the important thing. There is no question about what that man told me. Yeah. Like, it was a two-sentence email which said explicitly two things. So, Martin is surprised at Catholic bishops, Michael. Martin is surprised. I tell you, this government has a capacity for surprise that is itself surprising. They are surprised. They seem to be surprised that New Year occurs on the 1st of January and Christmas falls in, in December. They're surprised the Catholic bishops want religious services to be allowed. We aren't. I, I, I think we're, along with Slovenia, the only country in Europe that has a complete and blanket ban on religious services. And in. When the f- the date was first muted, they were going for when services might al- be allowed to re- recommence. It was hard to know if it was a deliberate piss take or some kind of political statement, where it was just one of those things that they might that they chose the date of Easter Monday. Now, for anybody out there uh, uh, who, who who doesn't know this, in in the in the Christian tradition. The single, the most important period of religious worship is happens over what's called the Easter Triduum, starting so it's Good Friday, Easter Saturday, Easter Sunday, and then before that, you by Wednesday, you go to Holy Thursday, etc. But the Easter week, 
and that they that they would have chosen to say, okay, we're going to allow you to start going to church the day after Easter Day, almost felt like a deliberate poke. Uh, this also happened. I mean, you saw Gary. There was an incident there where a priest was giving out communion, um, which is something which I believe has been happening around the country uh, that people can go. It's not mass. And people have been allowed to go into church to pray privately. And what would happen is that individuals would come, the priest would be there, he would give communion, and very often what he would give, the communicant he received would receive communion, but also would receive uh, hosts, which they could bring maybe back to them if they, were, if they had if people in their household that were vulnerable or couldn't move, that they would bring the host back and they could give communion to those people. And... In this particular case, the, the guardian in, in question decided that this was not an acceptable behaviour. Now, you can queue, as I saw today, you can have people queuing out the door in Little and Aldi. You could, and indeed in, in the case today, in my own shopping experience, you could be squashed up against the tills. And that's an acceptable thing. You can queue for takeaway coffees. But a couple of people happening to be in the church, which could take 700 people at the same time, was considered, I don't know in the particular case, but that was, this, that's an acceptable behaviour. I think, it, I'm surprised is that the bishops have been as pliant, as pliable, as compliant, as passive as they have been. In fact, again and again, with the exception of maybe two or three bishops and a number of priests, most of the noise that you've on the subject has come from Catholic laity. And by the way, not just we should be we should be clear, not just uh, Roman Catholics, but uh, I've this is we have heard this from Presbyterians, from members of the Church of Ireland, and certainly from the Evangelical churches. A growing frustration and maybe a little bit more militancy there about a, t a, a temptation just to say, well, to, to hell with this. But yes, Michal was surprised. I mean, I can, I can imagine he'd be surprised. I was surprised. I assume the bishops will be pliant and just sort of go with things. Didn't think they had it left in them to have a mild rebuke. I don't know if it's nailed down, but at least in one report that I saw, I think what really, and this perhaps was the ultimate provocation, that the churches were not going to be allowed to open again for services until we reached level two. By the time we got to level two, at that stage, you would have had open air dining and you would have had certain, you would have had some pubs would have been able to serve drink. So that does seem like a little bit excessive to say that you have to get to level two before you can actually have mass. I, in my local my local parish church would seat, I don't know, hundreds and hundreds, it's a big church. It is a very, very tall, airy building. And we know that ventilation is one of the big things in this. They have been absolutely scrupulous regarding the numbers that people come in. All the, the pews have spacing and people are very respectful of that. They have people out, they have obviously all the sanitize, hand sanitizing stuff. And there's a guy at the door with a clicker counting the people number in, and then the doors are shut. They have been probably more respectful of the rules when the rules allowed them to have 10 people or 30 people or whatever it was than any other, uh, almost any other business. And yet, um, they're not, and also uh, the question was asked. I saw, I think you saw this guy, they, they, they simply asked the question. What evidence is there that churches have been a locus of infection? And the answer came back was, we don't really have any evidence like that. But what the hell? It's not much of an answer, is it? No, but it seems to be enough. <laughs> yeah, you know, I don't know. It, 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 it's like, uh, so at, 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 a, at a level, is this... Is it a kind of a displacement activity? We're not vaccinating people enormously well. I think we could say that. And instead of doing that, we're doing all this other stuff, 
which gives them maybe a sense that when the government's on top of it, it's doing its best, it's making sure to keep it safe. Italy has taken, for example, and not just Italy, other countries have taken a very different approach to us. And we have been in lockdown for a, a very long time now, because if we remember, we had been in lockdown until Christmas. It was only the few days around Christmas that was lifted, and then we went straight back in. So we have been in lockdown, bar those few days of Christmas, for a very long time. The Italians have come in and come out. They've gone from yellow to orange to... They're now not... They're somewhere between orange and red. It was described to me today as a burnt orange, which is a very Italian attitude that you're, you're discussing colours, you know. It's a burnt orange because the case numbers are going up. And particularly in Italy at the moment, it's very concerning. They've actually closed the schools. The schools in Italy were open from September, but they've actually closed them now because you have a, a considerable amount of spread within school children, which is uh, obviously a concern. And hopefully that's something we're not going to see here. But we have experienced this. And I suppose they may reasonably say we, we don't know what is necessarily going to be the problem on any given place at any given time that could possibly be a locus of infection or a super spreader. So we're just taking a, a scattergun approach on the basis that we do so better safe than sorry. <sighs> I was saying, I was talking to a, a, a Palestinian Israeli a chap that I knew. We were, he was in Ireland for a year, a couple of years ago. And I was talking to him today on social media and he said, so I said, he, they're back in lockdown in his little, in his town or something. So he's a bit pissed off. And he said, so I said, have you vaccinated? Now, this is a guy, healthy guy, in his maybe early 30s. And his response was, what? I got vaccinated two months ago. And that kind of annoyed me. He, at most, he's 32 or 33. And he got vaccinated two months ago. I mean, I was being annoyed about the fact that the, that somebody of my age, with my characteristics, would be, would be vaccinated around now in the north of Ireland. He was vaccinated two months ago. Here in town, we uh, the vaccination centre, uh, for whatever reasons, as uh, I was told, and I don't know if this is true, that when they weren't, they had, there was a lack of vaccines, but on the Monday, they, there were no vaccinations. You know, it doesn't feel like we're sort of in the grip of a <laughs> tremendous effort. And we only have two, two choices, Gary. We can either be in, we have a choice, if to control the, vaccine, the virus, it's either do things like this with churches and just lock the country down and keep us in our houses and not have us moving or talking or meeting people, or we, we vaccinate the population. And since we seem to be incapable of doing one, we have to do the other. Michael, that's very negative. We've only missed the last three weeks of targets. And have you seen anything in the last week's report which is to suggest that we're not going to continue to fail to meet the targets in the weeks ahead. Well we've said we only do 84,000 next week and the government's target for the end of March is 1.25 million. Now the projections I have and these are not very advanced projections Michael these are all you know pretty back of an envelope kind of things but I have been collecting this data since it became daily available uh, indicates that we will miss that target by oh I'd put a I'd put a ceiling on it of five hundred thousand doses, and say I expect us at current trends to miss it by about three hundred and fifty thousand. I would be surprised if we vaccinated a million people by the end of the year, or sorry, by the end of uh, this month. Now it would be great to be wrong on that, but in order for me to be wrong on that, so they're saying eighty four thousand uh, this week. Sorry, that means by the fifteenth we will have vaccinated about six hundred thousand, six hundred and ten thousand people. Uh -huh we would need to vaccinate something like three times what we're doing a day so far every day of the month uh, past the 15th to uh, or from sorry from the 15th forward uh, to hit that target and we're not going to we are simply not going to do that so the government is already banning or saying it's AstraZeneca and its supply but they'd previously said that that was being accounted for and it looks like we're going to miss the target by so much that, yeah, supply might be part of it, but it can't be all of it. There's just not enough variance in supply to explain a potential miss of 500,000. Did you see the story that was floating around Twitter today saying that it, was it a TD had been in contact with an American pharma company, which said that it was that it was in a position it was willing to supply us with vaccines? Yeah, there was mention 
there was a mention from someone that said John McGuinness yeah. had said that. Now, I've been trying to find out where John McGuinness um, said it, and if he did actually say it, and I haven't been able to source it, so I didn't want to bring it up because I I don't know. It's doing the rounds. I don't know if it's true, so I didn't want to. If John McGuinness is listening to us, and that's very likely that he is because you know, everybody, all the movers and shakers listen to us, if they drop us a DM or send us an email or something, if there's any truth to that, I'd be very curious. Because like yourself, I tried to I tried to move to find out if there was if where it was coming from. If we if we had a source or if it was at a meeting, a parliamentary party meeting or something. But um, it didn't seem to make it. It didn't seem to make it anywhere after the day. It didn't seem to to build into it. Just curious if anybody knows anything about that. It may be just one of those things. I mean, we. Th- I think we're fairly sure that the that at least somebody reached out from Russia some time ago that there were Russian vaccines could have been bought. Yeah, I mean that that was that was also said. Now I tried to chase that up with the Russian embassy, with the Department of Health, uh, with the minister directly, and didn't hear back from the minister. The department said that they'd had no outreach, and the Russian embassy responded to me in broken English. <laughs> but I think the gist was that they had not. Now, having said that, the Sputnik uh, 5... I actually don't know if it's, if it's Sputnik 5 or Sputnik V. Because it could be Sputnik V for vaccine, or it could be Sputnik V for 5 in the Roman numerals. And I don't know. I've just been calling it Sputnik 5. So the, the Sputnik vaccine is actually being handled by a, by a particular entity in Russia, uh, which I did reach out to and try and figure out had they offered it to the Irish state. Could not confirm it. No, they wouldn't respond at all. What we do know is that uh, they have sold it to Hungary, to the Czech Republic, and to Slovakia, and to others. Yeah. Now there, are, there is a question there of um, Russia is selling a lot of vaccines, but there's a question of its actual production capabilities. Yes, but we there is also the the fact. Well, the fact is, so far as we know it, that uh, two hundred thousand vaccines arrived at the end of February in Czechoslovakia in in in, in uh, Czechia. And right now, Gary, I mean, it seems to me even 200,000 vaccines will be useful here if we are as tight as we are being told we are. All of that said, that's all speculation. It seems that the most obvious place to go looking for a few extra vaccines, and that's all we would need, really, to make a massive change to the timeline, is our nearest and dearest neighbour, who don't seem to have terrible problems with a shortage of vaccines. They seem to be going fairly nicely. No, no, they don't. But, you know, that's that's the uh, advantage of actually knowing how to negotiate a contract. The British government on this, there seems to be a tone of, well, we'll give it to the third world. We'll give our, our surplus to the third world. That may be something that may have been possible, and we've just missed the boat on it. Well, if you remember a few weeks ago, I mean, Boris Johnson was making noises about this. Arlene, Arlene Foster has been speaking about that. She said that it, that it, it should certainly show, it's something that should be done that she would support the UK government uh, helping out with the vaccine supply in the Republic because it was and it, this is true, I mean it's a political point but it's also true that from the point of view of the shall we say the health security of the north of Ireland and of the rest of Britain it makes sense for Ireland to be caught up in the vaccine process because having them sort of 50% or 60% vaccinated and us back down at 15 or 15% with an open border, that doesn't work. And when you have people flying, and also the usual problems with people flying in here and coming into, into the north and then over to England, it, it, we, it's in their interest that we have a more uh, sort of all islands approach to the vaccination. Uh, so... As a, and again, as I say, considering the amounts of involved, uh, a small small number of vaccines, I mean, a few hundred thousands at this stage could make a very real difference to the capacity just to, to ramp it up. If, that is, Gary, if we have the practical capacity to do it, and we don't know if that's true yet. Well, presumably we'll find out at, at some point. I was, um, one little, one little story that I'm just mentioning because I don't think it's really been a story is the um, the mandatory hotel quarantine bill that was signed into law there. Mm-hmm. Um, Michael, I've run the numbers on the uh, the bill, and it looks like it will impact about 814 million people. Yeah. As in there are 1,814 million people in the countries which are now required to have uh, mandatory quarantine if they come to Ireland. And of those 814 people, Michael, and this is 
very broad strokes. So this don't take this data as being literally accurate, but more indicative. About 804 million of them will be what the what the left would call uh, people of color. Mm-hmm. Uh, because someone, basically what we did, if you haven't looked at the list, we pulled together 33 different countries that we would ban. Sorry, we pulled together 32, and then someone went, oh, every one of these countries is in Africa or South America, so no one here is white. <laughs> uh, yeah. oh, oh, that looks Austrian. Yeah. <laughs> Throw Austria into the list. So it's it's thirty three like African and South American, uh, and I think some some like you know Panama, French Guiana, eh, United Arab Emirates, and then just Austria. Yeah. So, but the reason I just wanted to bring it up was I was looking at um, how long it would take someone in these countries to actually afford to stay in a hotel for two weeks in Ireland. Right. And. Assuming I looked at the the average kind of overnight costs for Dublin City, apparently 159 euro a night is kind of the average. So 14 days in a hotel is 2200 euro, right? If you worked in Malawi, right, that would take you seven years to make. Seven years. Uh, I don't know if it means anything, but the 14 day COVID 19 case notification. At a rate per hundred thousand from uh from for Mali. Is it Mali, not Malawi, yes? Mali is less than twenty. Yeah, one thing I did notice, Michael, is that a lot of these countries that got banned, particularly the African countries, the case numbers that they're experiencing don't really seem to reflect how they ended up on this list. It's almost as if someone just kind of decided to ban a load of African countries. It pointed at a continent said them. If you look at the map and you look at the, you look at some of these coloured coordinates maps where it goes from darkest colour to lightest colour indicating the, the case rates. Um, the North and South America is pretty, is along with Europe, the worst place. Uh, uh, Africa is outside of Australia, if we count Australia as a continent. <coughs> excuse me, the best place. Botswana is not great. Uh, Libya and Tunisia but after that it's pretty uh, there are no figures apparently for Tanzania I don't know why well either that or there are no cases reported by the WHO Uh, so Tanzania probably has no cases reported because Tanzania would have some kind of reporting then there's that uh, bit you know that odd bit of Morocco is what it's called Um, you know that that used where Polisario were the local sort of freedom fighter groups or terrorists or whatever you want to call them uh, fighting for independence from Morocco they don't have known but other than that you're looking at most of most of the countries like say outside of Libya and Tunisia in Saharan Africa you're looking at numbers are uh, uh, under 20 and the rest of them is sort of on, either under 20 or between te- 20 and 60 for a 14-day case notification now Gary it may be the case that the case notification in some of these countries isn't brilliant and that seems, you know, that's possible. These are not countries, they're not wealthy countries under massive infrastructures, but still, we're talking about the WHO case notifications here. But yeah, it does, it does look like someone just picked a pen up and said, okay, Africa, that's a good place to start. We won't have them. The reason I bring it up more than the fact that there are some real oddities about this list, and I do legitimately think that it was put together without Austria, and it was only when someone reviewed it and went, hmm, find me a white country. Just one. We just just need one. It is the token white friend. Um, If something like this was enacted by the Tories, or by Trump, or by Orban, if if Orban effectively banned 800 million coloured people from coming to uh, Hungary... I feel that would have been reported and reported in a very particular way. Yeah, I think that's a reasonable assumption. Let's let's look at the the African countries that would take at least a year to put together the actual savings to to stay in a hotel. Yeah. You're talking 200 million people, maybe. So if you have to save for a year to even afford the quarantine, I'm going to take that as a de facto ban on the average person in that country. 
coming here. One might observe how or why would an average person from Mali or Upper Volta or Guinea-Bissau be coming here? Well, Michael, because let's look at uh, Burundi. Let's say the average person in Burundi, they had saved €2,000 to come over here and stay for a couple of nights. And in the nine years, it would have taken them to save that. <laughs> okay. Uh, and then we just go, well, now another nine years for you. But I, whatever you think about whether or not there should be international travel and whether there should be mandatory quarantining. Now, I honestly, I think there's a strong argument that if you're going to have mandatory quarantining, have mandatory quarantining for everyone, as opposed to whatever the hell we're trying to do with it now. Because it was Higgins and because everyone is like, let's pull on the green jersey, this just isn't a thing. But if either of those two things changed, I feel this would be a, you know, can you imagine the Fintan O'Toole articles that would be written about this, Michael? Oh, in the normal course of business. If Trump had done the, the Muslim ban. Mm. Muslim ban wasn't 800 million people. No, 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 it wasn't. It was portrayed as being this, but actually it was quite specific. No, and I mean, we certainly have some questions about how some of these countries ended up on this list, given their reportedly very low rates of COVID. I, to be honest, I, I'm slightly confused by Austria. I'm, I'm looking at what I think are not the latest figures, and remembering that these things are, uh, this is an evolution always, you know. But these the figures, I think, for WHO figures they published for the end of February, just coming to the middle. Austria is honest, but Austria isn't even that bad. Estonia is worse. Um, Czech, I think, which bit is, which is the one closest to Czech, Czechia is worse, Sweden is worse, Poland is worse, Spain, Italy are worse. Why Austria particularly? Was was it because it was the first country on the list? No, because that would be Albania. But Albania probably didn't work for the purposes of, of the, for the purpose of whatever the purpose was. Good Western European country. You're saying they needed somebody, they needed somebody blonde, basically, is what you're saying. They needed blonde people on the list. Maybe they had a sense of humour, and after banning 800 million black and coloured people, they went, and, uh, you know what, throw in the Germans. Or the Germanics. And this is the closest way, this was the closest they could get to banning the Germans. Because they obviously couldn't ban the Germans. I mean, nobody's going to ban the Germans. Because, you know, that just does, that never makes sense, Gary. Anyway, I just wanted to, uh, I, I'll probably write something up on this, um, just to put the numbers out there, because they're actually quite interesting. But, um... Yeah, I just wanted to mention it because, frankly, I think if this was uh, in the normal course of things and if this hadn't been signed by Higgins and we weren't all being so, you know, rah-rah for anything that can be done without oversight, I feel this would not have gone down well. I feel if Grift had suggested, if Grift had written an article <laughs> suggesting this, yeah, yeah. we would have been crucified. You would have been burnt in effigy. Absolutely. There would be no doubt that we were just doing this because we were vile racists and then the government did it and all of those people, I would think, recalled that they, you know, a lot of the uh, a lot of the uh, refugee and immigration people are being paid substantial amounts by the government and so I would imagine that again became slightly less of a pressing issue or, you know, at least one you had to consider quite strongly before coming out with lines like racism about when you compare it by how many months and years people would have to work to afford the mandatory quarantine, because you have to pay for your own quarantine, yeah. you start with like nine years, and then the very last one is Austria, and it's just less than a month. So Austria is inconvenienced. The African countries are just banned. How much does it cost, by the way? Um, I figured for 14 days in a hotel, so I took the, the average... Uh, accommodation cost for Dublin City. So 159 a day, looking at 2,226 euro for a 14 day in total. Now, obviously, with all of this stuff, there's like, there's a load of give and take here, even with the, the, like, working out the average wage in some of these countries you have to use, or you have to approximate. That's full board? Uh, I don't know if it included breakfast, actually. I'd have to get back to you on that. So it may not include lunch or dinner? Oh, no. No, like, but that's a variable cost. That could be anything. Well, it's not really, because, I mean, the only place they're going to be eating is in the hotel. I mean, they're not going to be allowed out of the hotel, so they're going to be, feed they're going to be eating there. Someone will get a steak, and someone will get, like, popcorn. <laughs> so, yeah, it's, it could... I think 159, at the moment, with this, the, this, the current state of the tourist industry, 
I, I think you could probably get a better deal than that. Well, it will depend, of course, because it'll be the government that will choose the hotels. Maybe it'll be the Hilton, the airport. There is no final cost actually given onto how much will, it will cost for the quarantine, because the government is going to do a deal on this and just... It seems to me the more sensible thing to do, if you're going to come over from one of the countries on the list, is to come over and apply for refugee status. Then you get a house rather than having to go into quarantine in a hotel. You can quarantine in your home. Oh, you. Oh, me. A no. little bit of politics there, as Bill Elton used to say. It's also an just a little a window into the, into the reality of what the world is like. I mean, it's funny. You mentioned this. It reminds me. I saw somebody, and this was making making the rounds. You know, in all the various pathetic attempts people have been saying, oh, well, you know, it's not that bad, really. One of the lines that was been doing the rounds the last couple of days on social media was, well, you know what? There are hundreds, uh, well, I don't think they said hundreds, many, many poor countries around the world who are only just starting or even haven't started their vaccination programs who would love to be in the position that we're in. Well, yeah, but there are countries, as you, you would be pointing out, where a two-week stay in a hotel in Dublin will cost you nine years of, of a wage. So, I don't think it's really a, an, even an interesting comparison. We are a rich country, no matter how. No, I mean, the, the average monthly wage in uh, Burundi is about 20 euro. Really? In Burundi? Yeah. In Burundi, you would have thought it's green, lush, fertile kind of a place, not affected by... Maybe it is, but I don't... Well, I mean, Burundi's GDP per capita in 2017, was $293. Burundi's beside Rwanda, isn't it? It was a Belgian, it was a Belgian uh, possession. Uh, Burundi, Rwanda, and of course the Congo, they were the, the Belgian possessions. I think you go into Burundi, it's a Burundi, Rwanda, you go in from Tanzania, and yeah, it's one of, the, it's one of those fun little confusions, because uh, it's they, they're driving the other side of the road, so you go from one country to another, you have to flip over that's not very much they make i think they grow coffee they grow coffee in rwanda certainly i wonder if they grow coffee in burundi i think before we get too deep into this very complicated and highbrow discussion of the the urban geography and the political geography of africa we should draw draw this to a close and let the people go home we will be back on sunday or sorry on friday Actually, nothing fell over a cough fire since we were last here on Sunday, Michael. Or was built. No, not a thing. Well, hopefully that happens over the next uh, day or two. Fingers crossed. Mind yourselves. All the best.